Good morning. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Our study of the epistle of James draws nearer and nearer to its conclusion. By my counting, we have this morning and two more Sundays left in James. James is closing his letter with a series of general exhortations to the body that give some direction, pointer to the types of activities that should be going on in each local congregation. Um, Verses 13 to 18 constitute a single unit. We've spent one week looking at it. We'll look at the second half this week. I'd like to begin our time by reading James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. and Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Lord God, I ask that you would give us the grace to receive your counsel, your commands for us, that in our grief we would draw near your throne in prayer, in our joy, song and praise would roll off our lips, that we would confess our sins to one another, that we would pray for one another, that we would love and serve each other in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we saw the first three sets of instructions. Um, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then the third case study is going to launch us into this morning's text. The particular case James considers, is anyone among you sick? Well, he must call for the elders of the church. We considered how even at this early writing, the church polity structure was in place. Churches had elders, plural, um, and they were to call for them. And the elders would pray for him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And I suggested last week that the promise of healing was tied to the particular case of sickness or illness brought on by personal sin. And we considered the fact that not all illness or sickness is the result of sin. We know from John explicitly, the man born blind, when the disciples said, who who sinned, his parents or him? Jesus said, neither. This is for the glory of God. There There is sickness that is not tied to personal sin. But we also know that sickness, weakness, suffering can be a form of God's discipline. And so I think that's what James has in view here. I think the the verses this morning flesh that out even further. Our text 
breaks down really into two sections. In verse 16, we have corporate instruction. And then in verse 17 and 18, we have the illustration of Elijah. So there's the instruction and then an illustration. So let's dive in, looking at the instruction. First, beginning with point A, the connection. Connection. Verse 16 begins with a therefore. And I know this is kind of corny, but you'll remember it. Whenever you see a therefore, you want to check to see what it's there for. And it's tying together an argument. What he says here in verse 16 is not disconnected from what came before. Because of the particular case of the man who is sick, who calls the elders, who pray for him, whom he confesses his sins, who is healed. Because of this particular case, there's a general practice that should be taking place in the church. He's taking a specific instruction and applying it generally. So because of what I just said in 14 and 15, verse 16, that's, that's the rationale, okay? He's going from a specific case to a general principle, which brings us then to point B, the command. The command. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The first point here is confession. Confession. Mutual confession. And this is something that as Christians we've got to sort of deal with and wrap our heads around with. We know that we ought to confess our sins to God. And we also know how the Roman Catholic Church has turned confession into a priestly clerical function where there's confessionals and confessors, and we don't like that. And so we can so strongly push back the other way that we do virtually no confession in the body. And whichever way you take it, James is giving some clear instructions here that the body, one of the things that ought to mark the body, is mutual confession of sin. Mutual confession of sin. Confess your sins one to another. We even see examples of this in the New Testament in Acts 19. And it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. These are people caught up in witchcraft and sorcery and magic. Um, so let's consider the command, confess. Now, I don't think this is a command that you sort of obey weekly. Have you obeyed the command to confess your sins this week or today? And if you were to ask me, to how many people? I would say, well, how many blessings do you want? How, how many blessings do I have to pursue? The logic is this. What happens to the man who calls the elders is a good thing. He's forgiven. He's healed. Because that's on the table, because that's available, he exhorts, encourages the body to be confessing their sins. You'll see, ultimately, with the view of healing again as well. Because these principles are operative, we should be doing this. So I can step back and make a general statement. What ought to be the case is in your Christian life, some people in the body, you are with some regularity confessing your sins to. Not because they need to forgive you as opposed to the Lord, but tied into the next command so that they can pray for you. Really, the question would be, how many people in this body can effectively pray for you? How many people know where your struggles are? How many people know where your weaknesses are? The things that are most important for your spiritual growth, how many people actually could pray for those things? The, the, the challenge is, for most of us, the, the sins that are most deeply ingrained, the ones that have the strongest hold over us, tend to be the ones we talk least about. So... 
I think what James is getting at, my exhortation to you would be, and we, we try to do this through small groups, through Bible studies, through accountability groups, is that not in the Roman Catholic view, where I need to make sure I've confessed every sin of the day and find my confessor, but certainly where sin is persistent, where it's taken hold, what Galatians 6 talks about becoming ensnared or overtaken by any trespass, where your initial efforts of confession to the Lord and repentance are, are bearing meager fruit, it would be a good thing for you. James exhorts you to find people in the body you can share this with. Conf- confess in English has the same root structure, same etymology as in Greek. To agree with, to say the same about, to, to name your sin rightly, to say of it what God says of it without minimization, without excuse making. And, and to find confession in the body. This should be taking place. That these are marks of a healthy body. And, and the reason for this, in part, and it's got to pause, is because of the priesthood of believers. I don't know if you know this, but when you became a Christian, you became a priest. See, the Roman Catholic Church is quite right in one sense that confession should be done to a priest. The New Testament reality is we are all priests. I'm going to digress briefly here to make this point. God had promised at Exodus, at Mount Sinai, before even giving the Ten Commandments, that Exodus 19, 5 through 6, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 1 Peter 2 picks this up. Turn to 1 Peter 2, just a few pages over, briefly. I want you to see this. Um, I think it helps make a little more sense of why it might be a helpful or good thing um, to with some regularity be sharing your struggles, confessing your sins in that sense to others in the body. First uh, Peter chapter two, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now there's the declaration. You, if you're in Christ, because Christ is a priest, if you're in Christ, you are a priest. Which of course makes the question, what do priests do? And very simply, the author of Hebrews points us in the right direction. You can turn there, or I'll just read it to you. But Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's the fundamental notion. The, the prophet and the priest in Israel both stand between man and God. The priest comes to the people, think of Moses coming down the mountain, hears what God says, and he speaks to the people on behalf of God. The the priest generally does the opposite. He ministers to God on behalf of the people. Ministers to God on behalf of the people. This is exactly the function we just saw in our previous verses. The elders come. They anoint 
That's a priestly function in the Old Testament, at least. They anoint the sick man and they pray on behalf of him. They intercede to the Lord for him. He's healed. Now, Rome takes that and says, exactly, that's what the function of priests and pastors. The next verse makes it clear this is a body function. This is a body function. This is, this is precisely this basis of the priesthood of believers is the basis of our intercessory prayers. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. When you pray for other people, whether it be your family, whether it be believers, whether it just be you're praying for the people in Ukraine, it's a priestly function. It's a good thing that you're doing. The book of Revelation three times emphasizes the reality of the priesthood of believers. I mean, Revelation 1, 6, that Christ has made us a kingdom priest to God. Probably most notably, Revelation 5. Um, God willing, we'll close our service this morning with, is he worthy? And, and as John is asking who's worthy to open the scroll, and he gets the response, the reason he is worthy, verses 9 through 10 of Revelation 5 say, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Christ is worthy of praise because he has made us a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth even in the, the closing chapters of Revelation, Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. So when you find yourself caught in sin, when you find yourself dealing with persistent sin, or any time, honestly, it would never be inadvisable. You'll never re- reap a cursing for opening yourself up to another and sharing your struggles. But particularly when you find your initial dealings with sin impotent, go get others to pray for you. We're jumping ahead in the rationale of the text, but it's really simple. Confess your sins so that people can pray for you because don't you know that righteous people praying causes things to happen? And Don't you want things to happen? Don't you want effective prayers on your behalf? That's the rationale. He's appealing to self-interest. Which is a good thing if what you're interested in is holiness and pleasing the Lord. So this should mark out the body and the life of the church. I can't tell you how many people, how often, but it should be present. And I think you could talk to many of the more mature people here who can confess to you, pardon the pun, admit the blessing and the value of having people who You've shared your struggles with people who can pray effectively for you, people who know where you're actually at and what you're dealing with. Fear, fear of rejection, fear of, of people misunderstanding, fear, fear of people looking down on us, I think causes us to, to, to put on a good face and make everything look fine and dandy. But the reality is if you're here as a Christian, you're, you, you've come confessing you're a broken sinner. It shouldn't shock people. You don't need to pretend you're better than you are. Be honest, be open, confess your sins to one another. That's James's counsel in general. Not as a strict rule every day, but as part of the pattern. In the same way that if you're suffering, it'd be good to pray. If you're happy, rejoicing, 
You should be singing. Not that every time you're happy you must sing, but this should be the type of patterns that mark the body in the same way. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Confession of sin. Okay, next point. Intercession. Intercession. The word for prayer here and pray for one another. Petition for one another. And this has in particular the view of intercessory prayer. And the logic is now that I know someone's spiritual struggle, now that I know where they're at, I can more effectively pray for them. It's why it's hard to pray for people you don't know at all. The more knowledge I have of someone, the more effectively I can pray for them. And so we intercede on their behalf. And again, this is something that the New Testament bears witness to in many places. Let me read to you. Um, did I get rid of that first? I think I did. Okay. First Timothy 2, 1 through 2, where we're praying for all men. First John 5, 16, praying for a brother caught in sin. And we're praying for each other. We're praying that God might give my brother, my sister, the the grace, the faith to fight well this sin they're struggling with, to break free from its slavery, to be released, to be triumphant, to be victorious. Um, Praying for such people, interceding on their behalf. That that should mark the body that we're praying for each other. Um, With a consequence in view. So we've got the command, confession, intercession, now the consequence that you may be healed. So James is assuming that corporate healing at various places is predicated by corporate confession and corporate intercessory prayer, a body that is regularly and at times sharing with each other their struggles, a body that is then turning and praying for itself is a body that is being healed. Now, the word for healing here could refer to spiritual healing or physical healing. And I think given the previous verses, it definitely has physical healing in view, but I I wouldn't limit it to that. I'd I'd go with a more full orbit picture. It's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2 about Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. And that reference is clearly to the healing from sin. And so the notion of of being weak in faith, struggling with some persistent problem and finding healing, and if there is the issue of a physical malady that's coming with it, being healed in that sense as well. And as Americans, we're just far too private, individual, to, to want to open up. And who knows what types of healing we are missing. And I know we get nervous with that. But, but the example he's going to give is of a three-year drought and a man who, through his prayer life, raised someone from the dead. That's going to be sandwiched in between the account of Elijah praying for no rain and praying for rain. And James is going to insist that we think far too little of our prayers and their effect. And so he's exhorting us, don't don't miss out on these blessings, this healing, this help. Be confessing your sins to one another. Be praying for one another that you may be healed. So, that you may be healed. First thing to observe, sin and sickness may well be connected. Sin and sickness may well be connected. We know of a couple examples, the, the clearest being 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 31. Paul is given instruction on how we ought to approach the Lord's Supper, the symbolic meal we take. And he warns the body to examine themselves to make sure they're not coming in a flippant, light, or unworthy manner. And he says, This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
Many in the Corinthian church are weak, ill, some have even died because they flippantly came to the Lord's table. That's not likely going to be the diagnosis your doctor gives you. Well, I think, sir, perhaps, have you been coming to the Lord's table with... It's not going to even be on his radar. And it's something for us to consider. We want to avoid the, da- the danger of assuming every illness, every sickness is some individual response to some particular sin. But we likewise want to avoid the danger of thinking that's never the case. We need to consider these things soberly. So... Um, consequence. Sin and sickness may well be connected. David in Psalm 32 confesses the same thing. Likely the murder of Uriah is what's on his mind. We can't be certain. But in Psalm 32, 1 through 3, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. James is going to quote that, I believe, here at the, the next two verses. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There was a period of time, at least nine months, if this is about David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, where he did not confess his sin. And his bones drew dry and tight. He had physical consequences of God's judgment on him. And you say, yeah, well, David just confessed to the Lord. No, he didn't. David put a confession of sin in Israel's psalm book. Psalm 51, with its heading, written by David when he went into the wife of Uriah and killed, is his public confession of sin for all of Israel for all of time to see. So we know there can be connections between sin and sickness, sin and illness. Not, Not that it happens all the time, but it's worth considering. And James is saying if you won't consider that, There will be healing in the body, both spiritually, I believe, and physically, that you're going to miss out on. And and so he's he's appealing to our sanctified self-interest. Who doesn't want to be more victorious in their fight against sin? Who doesn't want to be healthier in that sense? So, point two, we must be as concerned about holiness as health. We must be as concerned about holiness as health. Now, one thing we, we have no shortage of, and I, let me try coming out of it a different way. One prayer request we barely ever feel self-conscious making are prayer requests for health-related issues. There's nothing wrong with that. Many people came to Jesus with health-related concerns. Lord, my servant lies sick. My daughter, my son. I'm not to minimize that at all. And so when we share prayer requests in the ABF or even on the prayer chain, a large percentage of those prayer requests are for physical health issues. And that's great. That's fine. That's as it should be. What I want you to see in this text is even as prayers for physical health and healing are in play, there's also sin issues being dealt with. Because those are just as important. Um, t- turn, turn to Third John. You want to see a really challenging prayer? Look, look at Third John and John's prayer. Third John one. Well, there's only one chapter, so Third John verse one and two. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you that you may be in good health 
as it goes with your soul. I pray that you have as good health as the health of your soul. Now, some of us may not want someone to pray that on our behalf. Because it's a package deal. We should be as concerned or more concerned about the spiritual state of others and their spiritual health as we are with their physical health. And so John has the boldness to say, I pray, I pray that you enjoy physical health even as you enjoy spiritual health. They're both taking place in the body. They're not separate from each other. It's great and good and right that we pray for our healing. We pray for our body members in the hospital, recovering from surgeries, overcome with sickness. I've been, I've been praying for a brother of mine um, getting over uh, COVID effects that are still in the lungs, and I've been praying consistently for him. But the temptation and the danger for us can be that we only focus on those things and we ignore the spiritual. And if we do that, we basically have bought into the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It's just the light version. You're not going to be rich. You're not going to live forever on this earth, but you're going to have a smooth, comfortable life and you're not going to have sickness. So we should be praying for our healing. That's right here, that you would be healed. And we should also be dealing with confessing sin to each other. Um, that's, that's what's going to mark a healthy body. Which brings us into the conclusion. The conclusion. Verse 15 kind of sums up and closes out this section of instruction. The prayer, no, not verse 15, I'm sorry. The end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So get the logic. We've seen the specific case of the man who's sick and calls the elders. They pray for him. He's confessed his sins. They're forgiven. He's healed. James says, therefore, because of this, you all ought to be confessing your sins to each other and praying for each other that you may be healed. And then he shows us why we should believe that actually will work. Don't you know the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working? If you're struggling in your life with sin, get someone who's righteous. Get someone who's godly praying for you is what James is saying. Their prayers will have great power, even if your own prayers seem to be impotent. So let's, let's draw some conclusions here. The first question is, what does he mean by a righteous person? There are some who are going to say, well, there's an unrighteous but Christ. All I need is Christ interceding for me. Look, look back to verse 6 of chapter 5. Look back to verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is using righteous, if you will, with a lowercase r. He's using it relatively. The godly person, the person trying to pursue the Lord, the person trying to be obedient. We've seen in the Psalms, Lord, vindicate me according to my righteousness. And yes, in an absolute sense of sinlessness or condemned to hell, there is none righteous, no, not one. Absolutely. And yet the Bible can call Noah a righteous man. Job, a righteous man. And it means it in you know, the lowercase r, a godly person, a person pursuing the Lord and his will. That's how we use it in verse 6 of James 5. That's how he's using it here. Don't you know godly people praying get things done? That's what he's saying. And that's what the example he's going to use is meant to prove. So get godly people praying for you. Get godly people praying for you. That's, that's the rationale. Personal um, prayer, here's the point, has great effect. Personal prayer has great effect. 
Jesus knew we'd have trouble believing this. Prayer is difficult. It's difficult to pray for more than two or three minutes at a time. One of the hardest homework assignments I ever had in seminary was a class where the 90% of the homework of Snyder's prayer class was that we pray for one continuous hour every day. You don't realize how much you don't want to pray until you try doing that. Because you run out of things to say after five minutes. I had to go on prayer walks so I wouldn't get distracted. I could just go out for an hour-long walk and pray the whole time. We, we don't often want to pray. And so we can come up with excuses. Um, well, God's sovereign, and God knows what's best, and he doesn't need my input, and he doesn't need my advice. And yet Jesus, in Luke... Um, 18, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Think of the parable of the persistent widow. You think of the parable of the importune neighbor who kept knocking on his neighbor's door because he needed a loaf of bread for his visitor. Jesus told many such parables and gave many such exhortations to encourage us to pray with vigor, repeatedly, persistence, And James here is saying, don't you know, don't you know the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working? Um, And I do absolutely believe that there is truth in the fact that oftentimes when we pray, it is about our wills coming into alignment with God's. But if that's all you make intercessory prayer, you will conclude our prayers don't actually accomplish anything. And James is emphatic. The prayer of a righteous person, the Greek literally has... The, the working prayer, or the, the prayer of a, great, of a righteous person is great power as it's working. The working prayer, which focuses somewhat on the energy, the persistence in that prayer, has great power as it is working. And so what I'll often get, especially if we've been teaching on the sovereignty of God, is, is if we insist, and I do insist, God is sovereign over all things, whether it be the far stars or each snowflake in a blizzard, God is sovereign. Well, then do our prayers do anything? Do our prayers change anything? And and they certainly don't change anything if you mean God's eternal timeless plan, but then I suggest something and God changes his eternal timeless plan and now something else happens. No, our prayers don't change anything in that sense. But the Bible again and again, and I'll show you some examples, is insistent that somehow fitting in with God's timeless Eternal plan, our prayers make things happen. They're assigned causal agency. So the Bible can speak about things happening because people prayed. Let me give you an example. Philippians 1.19, Paul is so bold as to say this, I know that through your prayers, that's agency, and the help of the Holy Spirit, and the Greek has their prayers first before the Holy Spirit, just as the English did. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul's assigning agency, consequence, causality to their prayers. Philemon 122, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. So Paul is confident he's be able to show up and see Philemon. Get the guest room ready, for I'm hoping that through your prayers... I'll be graciously given to you. And he's not just saying hope is in wish. He's saying, get the guest room ready. I have this hope that because of, through your prayers, the Lord is going to allow me to come see you. And yes, we should hold to the sovereignty of God, but we should resist the notion that thinks then that all prayer is, 
petitionary prayer in particular. It's just getting my will lined up with God. That's part of it, but James is going to emphasize, and the example of Elijah is going to prove, godly people pray, things happen. Prayer is effective. And and the reason I'm, I'm hammering this point is, if we don't believe that, we're not going to see the value in getting others praying for us. We may see more value in our privacy. We may see more value in people minding their own business. And James is saying there's, there's a blessing. There's forgiveness and healing and help available to bodies that are sharing their struggles with each other and praying for each other. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Next point I want to make. Personal holiness is the power of prayer. James has already stated that it wasn't the elders' authority and position. It wasn't any power in them that healed the sick person. It was the prayer of faith and the Lord raising him up. And here, the only qualifier for this effective prayer is righteousness, holiness. It's not the prayer of someone who's led the Lord, someone to the Lord in the last week has great power. It's simply the prayer of the just, the righteous, those who are pursuing holiness. And this is a point the New Testament makes. 1 Peter 3, 7 warns this way. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You're not caring for your wife with gentleness. God may not be listening to your prayers that much. That's, that's what Peter says. So that your prayers will not be hindered. One of the reasons you need to be diligent Men, to live with your wives in an understanding way is so that your prayers aren't hindered. That's what it says. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The Lord would not have listened. 1 Peter three twelve, putting it positively. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God is eager to hear the prayers of the righteous, his sons and daughters. And personal sin can get in the way of a prayer life. Um, that's, that's the point I want to draw from that. So that's the conclusion. Personal prayer is great effect, and personal holiness is the power of prayer. Let's now get, oh, wow. Let's now get to the illustration of Elijah, the illustration of Elijah. Two points. First, James wants to highlight Elijah's commonality. Commonality. He writes, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what's his point here? We may be tempted when we read of those people through whom God has worked mighty miracles, done great things, and think they're in a class all their own. Elijah was a different sort of man. I'm no Elijah. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In that sense, he was no different than you or I. And the point he's about to make is the the crazy, mighty things done through Elijah's prayers that God did on his behalf are available to us as well. That's, That's his point. The commonality of Elijah is highlighted. He was no different from us. That's really, strictly speaking, his point. It's the same language used in Acts 14 and 15 when 
the Greeks start worshiping and bowing down to Paul. And he rebukes them and says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news. And they present the gospel to them. Elijah had a nature like ours. He was no different from us, which practically then means if the power of prayer is personal holiness, we have the same opportunity for holiness as he did. Elijah didn't have any special cheat codes or advantages. We have, you could even argue in the new covenant, we have greater opportunity for holiness than Elijah. First Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptations overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. You can grow in holiness as much as you want to, as much as you pursue it. There's no glass ceiling. We, we tend to think reversely that because Elijah did such great things, of course we couldn't be like him. Elijah did great things precisely because he was faithful, because he did believe the Lord. Next, third, we have even greater access in prayer than he had. Now, this is one point where the new covenant is emphatically clear. The new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling for all believers, which Romans 8 says, by which we cry, Abba, Father, is a unique new covenant blessing. Hebrews four fifteen through 16 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace. As great as Elijah was, I don't believe he would have dared to enter the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest once a year did with the blood of the atoning sacrifice on his hands, and he got out quickly. And yet we do that in prayer because of our great high priest, Jesus. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Elijah's our example. And the first point he wants to make about Elijah is, guys, he's like us. You could be as holy as Elijah. You have greater access in prayer than Elijah. You have greater benefits and blessings in that regard. Then let's look at the consequence of his prayer. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I had intended to go spend some time in 1 Kings 17 and 18. I don't think we have much time for that this morning. I'd, I'd encourage you to read the story. It's the showdown with Ahab. I'll sort of summarize. Ahab is the most wicked king yet of Israel. He's done more to anger the Lord than all of the kings before him. And Elijah goes to him. I'll, I'll, I'll read you the highlights. First Kings 17. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then Elijah departs. And he goes down by the, the river the brook and the ravens fed him their food, but then the brook dries up. We're seeing the effect of his prayer. And then he goes to the widow of Zarephath to give us an idea that this famine is, is a large famine because even outside of the land of Israel in Zarephath, there's starvation. He shows up to her house and he says, can you give me some food? And she says, this is my last food and I was about to bake a cake with it so my son and I could eat it and then die. And you get the miracle of the bottle of oil that never emptied. 
And then the widow's son dies. And Elijah intercedes and prays for him, and he's raised. And then in chapter 18, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, Go show yourself to Ahab. And he does, and they meet at Mount um, Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And, and you know the story. They set up two altars. The prophets of Baal are dancing and cutting, and nothing happens. And then Elijah prays after they've doused it with water and it's consumed with fire. At the end of that chapter, after that section, I'll pick up and read the end. Elijah said to Ahab, this is after he's proven conclusively who the true God is, go up, eat and drink. There is a sound, the rushing of rain. So Ahab went to eat and to drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, which is a customary um, posture of prayer. This is where we see him praying. You can read the account, but as a man of faith, trusting God, being obedient to God, a man of prayer, Elijah's character is well established in 1 Kings 17 and 18. But back to James, I just want to make four brief points before we sing our closing song. First, Point number two, after looking at the Old Testament account, righteous prayer is fervent prayer. Righteous prayer is fervent prayer. Uh, James doesn't just say any old prayer. And we can be tempted to just sort of shoot off a prayer request. Hey, God. Father, please help with this issue and then leave it there. The emphasis is on working prayer, fervent prayer, praying as he prayed. And that's, that's the emphasis of Jesus' teaching as well, to pray and not give up, to be like that neighbor knocking on the door, to be like the child calling up to his parent for food. When my children are hungry and they want food, they don't just ask once and trust that daddy heard. I keep, especially with the babies, they just, every three seconds, maybe you forgot I'm still hungry, right? Righteous prayer is fervent prayer. But, set, but third here, Righteous prayer may ask for hardship. Isn't it interesting, the example that James uses of why we should be confessing our sins to each other and why we should be praying for each other and why we should believe that prayer works, has a man who, what's the first thing that Elijah said to pray for? Drought. Famine. That lasted three and a half years. Think of the suffering. The deaths. The hardship, the pain. You know, righteous people, people whose hearts and minds are more in line with the Lord, may not always be up for praying for the things you and I want them to pray for. Because if all we're interested in is a happy, easy, trouble-free life, a righteous person may sometimes pray for hardship. That's something to consider. <laughs> You know, Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 talks about how God disciplines us and grows us and challenges us. And I, as I talk with people, making their struggles and their lives, as I try to work with people, I'm often not praying God take the trial away, but praying that God help them to learn what he wants them to learn in the trial, that through his grace, their faith would not fail, but they'd overcome it. Because I know this is how God grows his people. 
parents don't want their children to have trouble-free lives. They want to see them grow and build character. And so one of the challenges is that a righteous person may not be praying for the things you and I want them praying for. No, no, no. I wanted you to pray that it would go away. And they pray that you would endure well. Next, righteous prayer seeks God's glory first. The example of Elijah, Elijah isn't doing this to be capricious. He's not mad at Israel. He, he wants to help establish that God is God and not Baal. And the famine and the drought and the rain were all about proving who is God. That was his concern. Righteous prayer seeks God's glory first. And finally, point five, righteous prayer seeks the highest good of others. Now, it's absolutely good to be praying for other people and their healing, praying for them and the difficulties in their lives, as long as we're putting it in the context of the glory of God. I'm stunned by how Paul prays. I'm just going to read you a number of Paul's prayers, but I'll just read one of them. Paul can, we saw in Philemon, pray for everyday things like travel mercies, that I can come safely. John prays that your health be good. But let me, let me read for you like one of the prayers Paul prays in the Scripture. And this is standard for Paul. This is what he's normally praying for. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be Filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's, that's the types of things Paul prays for. And so it's not, it's not that you should feel bad or we should stop praying for sickness, for pain and suffering. It's rather there are other things we should start praying for. There are other things that should mark our conversation and our prayers. I'm going to call the worship team up now. Our closing song um, brings us back to Revelation 5. Christ in his death and suffering has made us a kingdom of priests to our God. May he receive glory for he alone is worthy. Please stand.